I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Welcome back to Saturday School. We hope you had a good summer. We hope you enjoyed our bonus episode on Crazy Rich Asians. I wasn't invited. No, you weren't no. invited because it was a special episode for the Crazy Rich Asians Five Timers Club, and you are only a one-timer. Months later, still out when viewing. Yeah, so we had to bring in the real experts for that one. But this ties into our new season, which is about Asian Americans in Asia, coincidentally. It really was <laughs> coincidentally. I mean, we didn't do this by design. But it seemed especially appropriate to talk about the history of Asian American filmmakers, actors in Asia. When Crazy Rich Asians was being promoted, the only way anybody knew how to tie it to any kind of history was to say that it's the first mainstream Hollywood film set in the present since Joy Luck Club. Wait, did I just say that right? I mean, basically, you have to add on so many details in order for it to even be correct. Like, if you say that it's a Hollywood film and you don't say that it's a Hollywood studio film, then it's incorrect. If you don't add that it's a film set in present day, then it's also incorrect. And it's like, there's because really, the truth is, there have been a lot of Asian American films in between Joy Love Club and Crazy Rich Asians but nobody has seen them. <laughs> but it's much better promotion, and it's just much more exciting to say that there hasn't been a film with an all-Asian cast backed by a major Hollywood studio, a contemporary story since the Joy Luck Club 25 years ago, and then everybody's like, 25 years ago, that's insane. And all these kids are like, I wasn't even born yet. I know, yeah. <laughs> not to say that it's not a really big deal. In some ways, we haven't seen something like it before because it has been so successful in terms of box office. But I remember we were talking about it before, and I think you were a little bit skeptical about Crazy Rich Asians. I remember you saying, well, it'll only really be a big deal if it makes a lot of money. It's made a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right that even this idea where the heart of Crazy Rich Asians is the story of an Asian American going to Asia and the cultural differences. We wanted to show that there is a precedent for that as well. Yeah, a long precedent and a precedent that goes in a lot of thematic directions and a lot of directions when it comes to genres and how it extends beyond just the Chinese experience, even though the film we're talking about today is a Chinese-American one. But throughout the season, we're going to be talking about cases from, from Vietnam, Korea, Cambodia. India. And part of that shared experience that a lot of Asian Americans, especially recent immigrants, have felt is the uncanny feeling when you go back to the quote-unquote homeland. Kind of feeling like it's home, but then also feeling very different and being treated very differently. And it makes for great drama and comedy, which is hopefully another point of the season, which is that this, you know, this is fodder for excellent filmmaking. Yes. We were trying to find older examples. So we did find this great 1957 episode of a travelogue series on ABC called Bold Journey. And in it, Anime Wong, who by this time has reinvented herself as a TV star, talks about a trip that she made in 1936 back to China. Anime Wong was, of course, the huge Chinese-American movie star during the silent film era in the 1920s and 30s. I don't know. It was my second time watching this. I've always been obsessed with this footage that she took. And in the beginning of the episode, you see, actually see Anime Wong holding a camera. She's narrating her memories of who she met on the trip. 
So as a document of like a Chinese American going to China in the 1930s, it's fascinating to see kind of what surrounds her at that time, whether it's artificially surrounding her because people are treating her like a movie star or as this like outsider coming in. But the second aspect is how she's expected to narrate that footage as a Chinese American to a white audience in the 1950s, which is sort of interesting for other set of reasons. Yeah. When you're listening to her own voiceover as she's explaining China to American audiences, maybe it's because I'm Asian American and I know what it's like to visit China and be asked about it when you come back to America. But it kind of seems like she's BSing a little bit. Like, I think you can kind of tell that she doesn't really know what she's talking about. She's like talking about the Chinese people. They think about this, about spirits and about opera and about architecture and customs. And this white host is just eating it all up. He believes everything she says. I think for us, as Chinese Americans, it's like, I get why you think we're an expert in this, but we really aren't. Yeah, and I think as Asian Americans, we're constantly somewhere in the middle. And for a lot of Asian American history, that's been seen as a challenge, that we're perpetual outsiders wherever we go. But you can also see that as a good thing, like as the world's becoming more connected, it's not so much that we're excluded from both cultures, but that it's easier for us to navigate both cultures. And sometimes it can even be seen as an advantage because people look to us as a go-between or a translator between the U.S. and Asia. And sometimes we're good translators (laughs) and sometimes we're not. (laughs) But for Anime Wong, I think she realized in 1957 that if you don't kind of play into that, you may not even have the opportunity to speak at all. And I think that's significant. I don't think it's so easy to criticize that impulse of hers. And also like in watching this episode, you see how she has moments where she clarifies things that in the white man's hands would just be simple exoticism. And I think there's one moment in the episode where they're looking at a wedding party in China, and she uses that as an opportunity to talk about what a Chinese-American wedding in the United States is like. That's kind of a hybrid. So she uses this opportunity that might have made her foreign to reassert her Asian-Americanness. And I think that's a nice way to begin our season, because here we have a bunch of Asian-American artists and storytellers who are kind of playing between the the expectations that the Hollywood establishment has of them and the weird distorted opportunities on the Asian side. And instead of just saying like, oh, I give up, they say like, maybe this is an opportunity to write our own story in between. And I think today's film, A Great Wall, is a perfect example of that. My dearest niece, it's been a long time. Today we're talking about the 1986 film A Great Wall, directed by Peter Wang. Not to be confused with the 2016 film called The Great Wall, starring Matt Damon. Yeah, let's let's not confuse these. And two. Andy Lau. Yeah, Andy, Andy Lau, <laughs> directed by Zhang Yimou, which is its own kind of weird Chinese slash American bizarre thing. A Great Wall is about a Chinese American family who goes back to China for the first time. The father figure, Leo, is a Silicon Valley computer programmer. Leo hasn't been back to Beijing since he left as a 10-year-old. He's played by writer-director Peter Wang, who you might actually remember as the cook in Chan is Missing. Okay, and it's supposedly the first American movie made in China. Is that right? I don't know. That's how it's sold. And as the Chinese film historian, I'm like trying to find the exception to this. Because like, I'm thinking like, this can't possibly be the first. Well, there's The Last Emperor, which wasn't American. It's British, Italian. That was 1987. And then Empire of the Sun by Steven Spielberg was also 1987. 
So the Great Wall must have been made a year before those. If there was one before, it would either be like pre-1949 or just immediately before this one. The subtitle is An American Comedy Made in China. Yeah, which I think speaks to both the like, this is an American film being shot in China, but also that these are about Chinese Americans, Americans made in China. And it's a comedy. It's about like cultural differences this idea of a Great Wall is not just like a place in China that they visit, but also the wall between China and Chinese America that, of course, they somehow find a way to cross. And from the very beginning of the film, they're setting up the differences between 80s America and 80s China. Like the first scenes of the film are in Beijing. There's men in a bathhouse, kids playing ping pong, and two of the main characters are trying Coca-Cola for the first time. It was just like an innocent time that they're capturing in 1986 when I think China's fascination for overseas Chinese was a little riper. I think now they just think they're better than America anyway. So what use is a Chinese American to us? But like back when like they were discovering Coca-Cola and that, that there was a whole version of themselves overseas that grew up on Coca-Cola was kind of fascinating. And then when you're introduced to the family from San Francisco, you see the Golden Gate Bridge. Leona's wife are in their air-conditioned house, dressed in business suits. And the film does poke fun at that. The people in China are less fashionable than people in America. And they don't know how to wear makeup as well or something like that. Yeah, I feel like that stereotype doesn't really hold up today. Right. <laughs> so we follow Leo's family, his wife Grace and son Paul, as they arrive in Beijing and they meet Leo's sister's family. Leo and his sister haven't seen each other in forever, and she now has a husband and daughter who's about Paul's age. And during this meeting that's outside, there's a crowd gathering, like these American visitors coming to visit is a big spectacle for everyone there. And then you see Paul kind of going for one of those big American bear hugs <laughs> that his Chinese aunt isn't really quite used to, and he like almost knocks her over. The son in this movie is gigantic. He, he's like a football player. He's got this like way of strutting, like he's got a cocky bounce in his step. It might be just like, you know, the Chinese Americans, once they leave the United States, they think they're the hottest people in the world. But even in the U.S., you saw him, I mean, he has a white girlfriend for like whatever that means. He wasn't uncool in the U.S., and he definitely thinks he's super cool in China. And when he plays ping pong, he's got all these like power moves. Like he's not in, he doesn't play ping pong to be strategic and gentle about his technique he's like out out for the kill every time yeah the dad is pretty confident too like he has his own swagger there's like a scene where the son's making fun of his accent like why do you still have an accent you've lived in america for decades and the father's just like what what's wrong with my accent i think it's rather cute but at the same time he's coming off a major disappointment at work he thought he was going to be promoted but a white co-worker with much less experience than him gets the job instead the implication being that they don't want a Chinese-American face as the manager of the company. Yeah, and it's, I think, a sense that, like, if America's not going to accept me, then maybe I'm going to go someplace that will. And it's him going back to China and finding that it might not be the same China he remembers from 30 years ago. And if you think about, like, 1986, 30 years before that, this is very soon after the communist revolution. He skipped through the cultural revolution, amongst many other things that were happening in China during those decades. And significantly, his wife in the movie, I think a second generation Chinese American, or at least she's not from China. So she doesn't have the same connection to China that he has. And one of the early scenes in the film is them in a car. This is when the Chinese American family has just arrived in Beijing. They just got out of the airport. She's looking up guidebooks that have trivia about China. And he feels like he's above all that. Like, I'm from there. Like, why do we need a guidebook? Though what he finds when he goes there is his Chinese-American wife actually knows more about contemporary China than he does from the guidebook because he has such a dated idea of what the country is. And it's, it creates a sort of a bit of tragedy 
right? Like like this Chinese American immigrant came to America for a better life. And for the most part, got it. He's wealthy, got a great job, but is never going to be accepted. And when he goes back to China, China has moved faster than he's able to keep up with as an immigrant. And therefore, his own memories of the past become unreliable. And that gap that's created through immigration can, can never be transcended again. And he comes to grips with that. Yeah, but it's also a comedy, so it's right, not right. that sad. And no one in this movie is really sad. And what's great about it is everyone is cool in this movie in, in different ways. Yeah, it's very respectful to both cultures. They definitely poke fun at both sides. For example, there's like the boy from Beijing who's trying to impress Lily, the Chinese cousin, with his English language skills <laughs> in a way that seems kind of foreign to us because he's memorized the Gettysburg dress and he recites it as a way to impress Lily. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And Lily's actually pretty impressed. <laughs> <laughs> and on the opposite side, Lily and her Chinese family and friends are totally confused by the Chinese Americans as well, especially Paul, the second generation son. <laughs> There's a funny scene when they're like, you can use chopsticks, but you can't speak Chinese. Like, shouldn't, shouldn't you have both or none? Like this idea of like being partly Chinese, like that they're finding gradations that they didn't see before. And they don't know what to do with it. These Chinese Americans become threats. Yeah, the guy who likes Lily is super threatened by Paul. And yeah, so there's a rival of this Chinese American who doesn't just speak English fluently, but like his muscles seem to be proof of a certain kind of authentic westernization that he can never compete with. It's less that Paul is direct competition for Lily because Paul's her cousin, right? But it's more that he and even Lily's parents see the influence that Paul has on Lily. She starts to aspire to be more westernized and that scares all of them a little bit because of their own stereotypes about America being dangerous and full of people with STDs. And, you know, the kids there don't respect adults in the same way, which they can see by the way that Paul treats Leo. And there's actually a scene where Paul teaches Lily the word for privacy because he's horrified that her mom is opening all her mail. I can't believe this. Look at this. She reads all your mail. Well, haven't you ever heard of a thing called privacy? 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 Privacy. And it's significant that in the film, they don't even know how to translate privacy in Chinese. Like he teaches her the English word privacy that she then takes to her mom and says, why can't I have privacy? And... Um, I think this is partly playing to stereotypes of China and in terms of its oppression and its lack of freedom, but then also to how Chinese Americans feel like they're the saviors. <laughs> like we have the white savior as a trope, but here we have like the Chinese American savior as the person who's going to come in and save China from its own self-oppression. So yeah, so even though I think that these Chinese Americans, they might feel they have some superiority in terms of some ideals. At the end of the film, what they bring back to the United States is a newfound appreciation of Chineseness or Chinese culture. Then that's something that they don't want to deny themselves. I don't think I'm giving away too much by saying the movie ends with like the dad doing Tai Chi and the mom wearing Chinese clothes. Yeah, and this is when they're back home in San Francisco and their white American friend is asking how their trip to China went. And it's totally ridiculous, but it's, it's almost so over the top that we can't believe that they would have that kind of cultural transformation. But it's funny, like as a Chinese American film, that that's the conclusion they make, that this journey back to China doesn't necessarily teach them how to be Chinese American or what their Chinese American identity is, but it actually reinvigorates a kind of pure Chineseness that they didn't realize that they had in them anymore. 
which is something that we're not necessarily going to see in the other films in the semester, which are made by people of different generations. Yeah, definitely. So many Chinese American films, Asian American films are told by the kid's perspective, and therefore their parents are just this kind of accented weirdo. Whereas he's like, I'm a weirdo, so what? And I think it's because he made the movie. He knows what that so what means. And Peter's perspective is unique. And the film was fairly successful at the time. It was nominated, I think, for an Independent Spirit Award. It was a Sundance. It was its own novelty when it came out as this weird Chinese slash American slash Chinese American film. And it retains its stature as an important development in Asian American cinema. And um, I think I was telling you earlier that like, we have pretty good representation of Asian American life in the 90s and 2000s and onwards. But the 80s are, it's still, it's more of a gap. And we grew up in the 80s. And we don't really see representations of that Asian-American family life on screen. And here's a film that does. And it's nice. Apparently, when President Obama was preparing to go to China for the first time, A Great Wall was one of the films that he watched. That's so bizarre to me. I feel like by the time Obama's going to China, he has better examples than this. But yeah, yeah. if you're looking for films about Americans in China and that potential conflict, in a way that's sort of respectful and not here just to poke fun at the Chinese... This still remains somewhat of a, of a rare film. Yeah, so this movie is fairly accessible. You can stream it from iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, or you can even buy the DVD. Um, in 2017, there was a new Blu-ray version that was released, which comes with special features and a booklet with essays by Shirley Sun, the producer of the film, and Oliver Wang, professor, journalist, and former Saturday School guest when we did our Flower Drum Song episode. Yeah. You know what's really weird watching it 30 years later? The depiction of China seems really, really dated, like totally different than what I think of China is now. But the Chinese American experience still seems really, really, really similar. Like, not a lot has changed. <laughs> I know. We, we've really gone very little on <laughs> the distance. <laughs> Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck, a collective of podcasts that features stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. Check out our website at SaturdaySchoolPodcast.com where you can find lecture notes and links to all the films we covered. Or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And our podcast handle is Wake Up Set School. Next week, your assignment is to watch the 2000 documentary First Person Plural by Diane Borche Liam. Extra credit if you watch her next film, 2010's In the Matter of Cha Jung Hee. Class dismissed. I have been going to Chinese class ever since I can remember. You know what? I never got to watch Bugs Bunny. Son, nobody should deny his own cultural background. Although we send you to Chinese school every year, but you still don't speak Chinese!